Hello, you're listening to No Such Word Is Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today I am lucky enough to be sitting down for a second time with none other than Mark Simmons who is here to shed some light on the current situation involving Lolita, otherwise known as Tokite, her current situation about is she being released, is she being returned to home waters, should this even be happening. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Well, thank you, Hazel. It's really nice to be here. And I'm honored that you had me back. And, uh, you know, your your podcast, I'll tell you, you got quite a quite a, a diverse spread of uh, people on there. And so uh, just honored and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. I mean, definitely since the last time you were on, because you were, you, I think you were episode six or seven or something like that. It was a it was a while ago that you were on it was and, and definitely yet people grown. kept listening <laughs> i think you were definitely one of the reasons why people kept listening they were probably <laughs> like like your standard of guests has gone downhill since hazel <laughs> oh gosh i doubt it i can fix that <laughs> brilliant um <laughs> yeah so you have had an incredibly busy week um trying to keep on top of interviews journalists press trying to shed some light on the the current situation but what was your first thought when you saw the the press release from the dolphin company when they announced that they were partnering with um friends of toki oh i think honestly before i could even form a thought in my head i was sick to my stomach um and because everything about keiko just came rushing back in one big flood of emotions and you know um here we go again and i just you know, um, I've shared with people before, Charles Vinnick was on the Keiko Project, and Charles and I actually, it's in my book, I mean, he and I got along great, right? So it's it, some part of me when I uh, couldn't sleep that night, of course, I, I kept thinking, you know, if I if I could just talk to Charles, I would tell him, you know, I don't agree with your ideology, I don't agree with your mission, but um, you're undermining your own goals and picking the wrong animal again. You, you've got you're not you know everything we went through with Keiko they didn't learn their lesson they're doing it again so that that's really the first thing that came flooding out of me in that first 24 hours yeah I think it's really interesting because a lot of activists I think will be the first ones to say oh well, trainers never want their animals to move to a sea pen you know they just want to keep them all in small tanks and I'm the first person to say, you know, that's not true. I think every trainer would advocate for more space, more natural lagoons, whether that's man-made or in a sea pen, but you have to choose the right animals who are going to thrive in that environment. Yeah, you do. You absolutely do. And you hit the nail on the head. The one thing that is the single most important factor in this conversation for Keiko and for uh, Tokate and for any animal uh, where they're considering uh, a change of this magnitude is their uh, learning history, that unique individual's learning history. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the environment. So there's so many nuances here that we have to be clear when we talk about this. We're talking about operant learning, 
her ontogenetic history from birth, the, the conditioning, the deliberate building of relationships, positive relationships with people that make her who she is. Mm. And, you know, none of us are happy with the pool she's in, right? None of us feel good about that. That's not, it's 2023. We shouldn't have a, a killer whale in that kind of a habitat. And it's dilapidated. But you can't, you, you also can't, turn away from the fact that she's 58 years old. So something or 56 to 58 years old. And so something's worked well for her. Yeah. There's clearly a reason why she's still around. You know, you definitely, you definitely can't deny that, but you spoke about operant learning there and, and taking a closer look at Toki's life history and everything that she's known and everything that she's been taught. Obviously you have firsthand experience of doing that same assessment with Keiko when you yep. first met him. So where do you even begin in trying to study, you know, really inside an animal's mind of how they understand the world? Well, her, so first of all, an animal that has uh, developed relationships with humans and Keiko had been in the care of humans for 20 years. Uh, Tokite has been five decades, over 50 years. Um, you, she, th those animals are always going to seek human attention. It doesn't matter if they overcame every single challenge physiologically, hazards of man-made things, learn the natural environment. And by the way, there are a lot of hazards in the, in the ocean. Um, that's a, that's another topic in, in the evolution of zoological care with marine mammals that often gets overlooked, but you know, all of that, uh, she's always going to seek human contact. Keiko showed us that it was predictable. And, and that's exactly what happened. That's hazardous when you talk about putting an animal out in the wild. So reintroduction, I think we have to make a distinction here between release, which is mm. what we're talking about with Keiko and with Tokite rehab, which is an animal like Springer or an animal that has been born and survived in the wild and then is injured, is treated and re-released. That's a rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And then you've got reintroduction, which is the strategic uh, supplementing of a wild population with new genetics that we mm -hmm. would, you know, that starts from a different trajectory. You would never take an animal like Tokate to do a reintroduction. Mm -hmm. um, release is an emotional thing. And so I, th I think that, you know, that's what we have to keep in mind. Really want to do, or we've got to look at what her entire history and what she's accustomed to, what's familiar to her. Yeah. So take us back to the first time you did that similar assessment with Keiko. You know, the first time you met him and you realized that you had your work cut out. Sure. Mm -hmm. Where did you even begin? Well. When, and and at the time I had to learn things I, you know, there was a lot I was very familiar with in, in conditioning and behavioral science. There was a lot that I wasn't. I had to study memory mechanisms, you know, retention, retrieval, and how all that works. Um, when you started a project like this, you really have to approach it systematically. You have to identify, and this is getting a little bit geeky and technical in the behavioral science, but there are behavioral deficits and surpluses. So it's exactly what it sounds like. If you're setting out to achieve a certain goal, you have to identify what behaviors are unnecessary that the animal knows. Those are your surpluses. You have to identify behaviors the animal needs to acquire. 
or learn that they don't know. And those are your deficits. You have to then systematically chart a path to eliminating the unwanted behavior, which involves forgetting, right? The process of forgetting. Uh, and then you have to condition the behaviors they need to acquire that they need to learn to survive. Uh, there are certain behaviors, by the way, that we can't even influence. And that is uh, killer whales are not solitary animals. They need to be in a social group. Tokite has her white-sided dolphins is her social group. Um, you, you can't influence that with wild whales. You have no influence over it. You can't condition or reinforce the wild whales for accepting mm -hmm. her. Although that's what I wanted to do <laughs> with Keiko. You know, I didn't want to um, break the prime directive and and uh, have wild whales start following humans around. Uh, but we had a helicopter. And I thought, well, why don't we just have a big smorgasbord of food show up every time Keiko does? I mean, he'd be the most popular mm -hmm. guy in the village. <laughs> but... You know, they, we have very, very little influence over that. And the reality is that he ended up getting chased quite a bit. Any animal coming in, like that's going to be a threat to that yeah. wild population. Um, but in terms of the behavior, that's how we broke it down. The first goal was we had to get him physically fit because he was a couch potato. He would have never survived the distances that they traveled. Um, we had to... Re reduce a lot of his behavioral repertoire that just wasn't necessary. We had mm -hmm. to step back from our relationship with him. And that was very hard. It was hard for us. It was hard on him. Uh, Did he show any outward behavioral issues from oh, the yeah. withdrawal of um, relationship? Oh yeah. Um, behaviors that he had had in the past came, became more pronounced uh at first he would spend more time he had a blue boomer ball enrichment ball we had to remove that we had to sort of approximate it out of the environment because it became a crutch um he he would uh thrash what was called thrashing so he would lie at the surface it was really throwing a temper tantrum mm. literally just swing his pecs wildly and slam his head against the surface and that's a frustration response. That's mm -hmm. a that's a deprivation, a result of of deprivation. Uh, and when he did get out in the bay, and we were working on his physical fitness through covert conditioning. Uh, and for the trainers out there that are listening, we used a a reduction technique called differential reinforcement. Um, he actually became, he got reached a point where he was swimming so fast and furiously, so continuously around the clock. I thought we were going to give him a heart attack. Um, it was tough. It was a really tough, I call it the mean season. Uh, you know, we knew we had a goal. We knew that if he was going to have a chance at survival, that we had to go through this. And I really think we threw everything modern behavioral sciences knows. We threw the whole book at it. And the fact of the matter is you cannot unshoot that gun of all the conditioning and the positive relationships he had with humans. You just can't unravel that. I think it's really hard as well. You know, the majority of people who see, you know, release as an inherent or quote unquote release as an inherently positive thing for the animal, you know, they reduce it to, oh, but she can be taught to hunt. And, you know, then she'll have space or Keiko, then mm -hmm. he'll have space, you know, talking about either Toki or Keiko or any animal. And they forget, you know, you've got the stress of transport, you've got the stress of a new environment, but you've also 
got so many positive associations, not only with the trainers, but also, like you said, with enrichment devices, with structure, with training. There's so much comfort that comes with that setup that you then the daily to, routine yeah, yeah you have to take all of that away from your animal you know imagine doing that to a loved one mm -hmm. putting them through that yeah it it's so true it's so true and i think the general public you know a lot of times don't really understand that hazel i mean you we have a pet we go to work and most of us feel guilty because we've got this pet we love and we know they're at home alone while we're at work and we feel bad about that but then you know we go do things with them that's not the way zoological animals live they have you know a, a whole team of people planning their enrichment and their schedule and their routine throughout the day you know uh the level of care is so far beyond what any of our pets get that most people can't imagine that and she's had that for 50 years and one of the things I know now, I never, just to be clear, I've never worked with Tokite, um, Lolita. I have met her several times. I know a lot of her trainers, everything I know about her makes her just about the worst candidate. Um, not just, uh, let's not, not even release, just putting her in a C pen. Mm. Um, she does not handle change well. And uh, a good, good friend of mine was uh, had a su super relationship with her and worked with her back in 89. They put uh, they put a grouper, a live grouper in the pool with her just as enrichment. <laughs> and to hear him tell the story is hilarious. But the grouper chased Tokite and the white sided dolphins were chasing the grouper. So here you got the scene <laughs> of a big whale running from a grouper and the lags chasing the the grouper i mean but those are the types of stories uh from her trainers that have worked with her the most i hear over and over and mm. over again um she is she's not a wild whale do you ever think that there would be you know just hypothetically a killer whale that's currently in the care of man that you think maybe would do well with this kind of situation you know i worked with a whale at SeaWorld back years ago named taima and Taima was just um, just different enough that I, if I ever thought a, a long-term, a whale in the care of man long-term had any chance, she might have. But mm. that's pure speculation. I mean, what I have learned from Keiko is that, again, the power of that positive relationship with humans, you can't undo that. Now, if you were to use aversives, if you were to go in there with, let's say, a very a, a shock prod, and every time that animal, a human came near that animal, they received a shock, you could probably get them to stay away from humans. But that's a use of aversives brings in a negative stress that impacts everything about that animal, about their health. Uh, their psychological well-being. That's not something I don't, I think anybody would ever be prepared to do, but it is a tool in the toolbox of learning. We don't use it. I think as well, you know, you have to think of the benefit, like the overall, like, mm -hmm. why are you doing this? Like right. if you, if you're so determined to put an animal through that much stress, the stress of change of transport of a new environment of new conditioning, 
taking away everything that they find reinforcing and every every mm -hmm. positive relationship that that animal has you better be damn sure that what you are putting them through that for is going to be better for their welfare than what they had previously and the right. truth of the matter is we don't have any data we don't have any science that says her welfare or any animal's welfare will be better in a sea pen as it is in a man-made pool well you know, and for your audience that may not be in the professional field, let me just explain a couple little things here. We can rate welfare. We have increasingly sophisticated systems for me measuring welfare, including even blood tests. Mm -hmm. um, we can look at uh, Lolita right now, and I know it's counterintuitive. I know what it looks like, and I don't agree with it either, but we can look at her in her current environment, and she exhibits a lot of traits of a well-adapted animal that that is thriving she's alert responsive um she has lived quite a long life um there's a lot of things that point to the fact that she has good welfare now there are some immediate things that need to happen to her environment right now and what scares me that i don't think this has been talked about yet and and again for the general public in the united states an animal is uh, regulated under the usda um, APHIS, Animal Plant Health Inspection Service. This is a physical agency that sends an inspector to the site that goes through and makes sure that that habitat meets all the standard regulations, that they're keeping records, that they're food quality, all these things. Um, that's required for animals under public display. When the Dauphin Company or Eduardo Albo, who was in that media event, bought Miami Sea Aquarium, one of the conditions was that they had failed the USDA inspection and they either had to meet the, the, the standards to pass that inspection or they had to take her off a of public display. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of a loophole there in now not having to meet USDA regulations. Well, Lolita Tokite is uh, under the Endangered Species Act and she's in the care of man. Now her care falls to National Marine Fisheries. But National Marine Fisheries doesn't have an agency to carry out oversight. Mm. So here we now have a situation where 50 years she's been held to the standards of the USDA and now there's nothing. Um, and That's her scary. pool, it is scary. It's very scary. Her pool needs new life support system. They've improved it, but it's an old system that needs a new one. She needs shade structure. She needs a nutritionist in there. She needs some of her old familiar trainers. Uh, she is very, very tuned into her history with her trainers. Um, and then more long-term solution, ultimately she needs a, a bigger habitat because the, the concrete in that habitat is deteriorating. Do you see there being any way, you know, because we obviously in a previous episode, we heard from Mary and Ali who are very involved in the, very new organization truth for toki which is basically all of her trainers trying to band together to to do what's best for the animal in question and also for the two pacific white-sided dolphins that this whole thing is going to affect as well yeah. do you yeah. think that there's any way that opinions could be changed or this plan could be changed so that the money proposed could be used to improve her situation as is like what you just suggested Boy, is that a good question? I don't know. I I like to believe 
in miracles um was it albert einstein that said you either see nothing as a miracle or everything as a miracle and i i tend towards to everything so you know the fantasy here i think hazel is would would jim say wake up one day with the right information and say you know hey if he really cares about this animal here's what she actually needs yeah. based on all the science and all the experts and all the knowledge we know this is what she actually needs and it's not being carted off to the Pacific Northwest. That's actually a very, very high risk threat to her. And for what, as we've said, um, is he going to do that? Likely not because, you know, he sat right there on camera, just like uh, Craig McCall did in Keiko's situation. Craig McCall got in the water with Keiko and then got out and said, this project will never fail uh, for, for lack of money. Uh, Jim Irsay in the media event said, you know, when I make a promise, uh, I deliver, she's going home. And when you get that kind of bravado, ignorant bravado, mm. uh, they don't tend to change their perspective very quickly. Uh, unfortunately, I think he's been misinformed largely by Charles Vinnick and the and the people who want to see this happen. Um I think he he has very, very little information on the actual influential factors here. Um, so I don't think that's going to happen. What what might be more realistic, and by the way, for those of you who have heard and seen the petition that, um, you know, on change.org for her to, for SeaWorld to step in and do something, you know, we all know that's not going to happen either. That's probably a Hail Mary. Now, I would like to believe that SeaWorld would because the SeaWorld I knew probably would have. Uh, but I don't think it's going to happen. Also, I think the best thing for her, if you give me a blank check, is to build her a, a larger habitat, honestly. And there in her, Miami. Where she yeah, is. right there yeah. in Miami. Move her is just as short a distance as yeah. you can manage. And then when she's gone, turn that into a rescue and rehab facility. I mean, absolutely and then you've got benefit. lasting change that's right that's, that's going right. to benefit and a, toki and also future animals that's right and it's a historical landmark at that point so you know there, there's a lot of things that can be done that are in her best interest but um i'm not sure the will is there now how could it really happen maybe this story hits the and let me go back to the petition real mm -hmm. quickly because that's important that's more important than you realize and if anyone if it, listening wants to say, uh, sign the petition, the link will be in the bio. Yeah, and it's not about what the petition is calling for. It's about the number of signatures. That's what yeah. elevates this conversation to the national stage. And if that happens, we may be able to bring together private uh, in, investors or private uh, angels that want to see some the right thing happen along with, um, you know, a GoFundMe. Who knows? Who knows? Mm -hmm. But... That, that could happen it could happen it's the first step sure sure and you spoke about um things not always being in toki's best interest you know people thinking they're mm -hmm. doing what's best for the animal but in actual fact it's really just to make them feel better or make it's what they think is the right thing rather than what's right for the animal mm -hmm. with your experience of that same thing happening with keiko what was that like to experience that as a trainer to know that you know you were doing the best that you could for this animal but above you were the people with the money making the decisions and you could see them making the wrong decisions but no matter how loud you shouted they weren't listening to you 
Well, over the course of the project, we fought that battle almost daily and and we prevailed throughout most of the project. And I give a lot of the credit of that to Charles Vinnick. Charles mm -hmm. Vinnick was the middleman between us and the board at the Free Willy, Free Willy Keiko Foundation. So a lot of the crazy stuff that came from them, um, he would shield us from. Mm. And we would communicate with Charles and we would give him the science and the reasoning and the criteria and the logic. And we would show him what we were doing with Keiko and Charles understood it all. He understood and he respected what we were doing. And so he would filter that to the board and kind of keep them off our backs. That worked for the majority of the project. Where it really blew up, what you're talking about really blew up is in that very first introduction when they were mm -hmm. absolutely convinced that Keiko was going to swim off in the sunset with a wild pod. And we knew that wasn't going to happen. Um, that's where it really came off the rails. But the frustration, you know, for me, if I may, Hazel, is that we, I know, I know, and, and Keiko proved it, that our learning history is everything in this situation. It's more important than her medical history. She could be a perfectly healthy animal. It wouldn't change the fact that her learning history does not set her up for this proposed plan. And people understand behavior, right? They just don't talk about it like you and I do. When we talk about our pets at home, we say, well, you know, she knows when I put on these pants that we're going for a walk or I get these shoes out, we're going for a hike or, you know, they don't like thunder. They don't like this. They don't like it when, you know, we start to pack the car. People understand behavior, but somehow when we start to discuss a zoological animal that is the exact same way, somehow they apply a magic to this animal that no other animal gets, right? And I think that's where the disconnect is with the general public. I think as well, you can also apply that to the word they're using for this entire campaign, which is take her home. Right. Do right. animals have an understanding of the word home? Well, or do I would they argue... just know where they feel safe? Right. Right. And and I would argue that, you know, what they, they criticize for ripping her away from her family, which was a harsh thing, you know, and this is in the 70s. Back then... I'm not sure anybody thought about it that way, but here we fast forward 50 some years and I would say, look, you're talking about ripping her from her family again, twice in one lifetime. Is it fair? It's not fair. It's not fair to her. It'll make somebody feel good. And, you know, the sad thing is she would get over there. She'd die probably in my guess, the first four to six weeks of being in the environment for, for very uh, specific physiological reasons. Um, and they'd go, well, at least she got to die yeah. within sight of her family. It'll be the tagline. It'll be, at least she died at home. At least she died free. At least she right. was in the and, ocean. And I, and they say the same thing about Keiko. Well, first of all, Keiko was never free. Never free. For anybody who says he was released, he was never released. He was under human care all five years that he was in Iceland and Norway. Um, so set that aside. Secondly, he died seeking human contact. That's all he ever wanted. He didn't care how big the ocean was or how many whales were in it. He sought human contact at every single turn of that project. And that's exactly what Lolita would do. And I'm going to be a little bit less scientific here because I'm talking to the emotion. If I put words in her mouth or if I put words in Keiko's mouth, it would be, why? 
I just want to be with you. Why are you doing this? That's so, so sad. <laughs> that's, it is sad. And I think that's that's why trainers are getting so emotional about it. You know, I don't yeah. want anyone listening or anyone reading anything and thinking that, that trainers are angry because they're going to lose their jobs or angry because this whale is not going to be in human care anymore. They're not angry about that. They're mm. angry that what is going to happen is going to hurt an animal that they love. That's right. That's right. And, and I, you know, I'm very encouraged. I'm very encouraged to see the response from the zoological community. Now there are some that are a little bit um, critical of it because we've always maintained a professional voice, mm. right? Um, I think we have got to maintain that professional voice. I'm not saying throw that, cast that aside, but I think it's high time we show that we care as much about these animals as anyone out there. And our emotion is a, is a valid response. Um, I, I would caution people not to engage the keyboard warriors Mm -hmm. Stick to the experience. You know what you know, but emotion's okay. It's high time that we uh, had this conversation. And, you know, uh, I, I'm inspired by the response from the zoological community. I really am. I completely agree with you. I think the response from the zoological community, and for me, I might be biased on the trainer side of things, but this is the first time in a very long time that I've seen trainers willing to use their voices, you know, willing to, I want to say, take the risk to use their voices, um, you know, because everything that we've gone through this last decade, you know, we've been pushed down so much that we just don't even want to get involved anymore. And I think we need to capitalize on this change and say, hey, you can use your voice when you use it for good and you can make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Amen. And I, you know, the, the thing that is so um, impactful to me is that they, most all of them, they all understand the importance of the zoological mission, right? That we mm -hmm. understand because we coming from the background that we come from, we know, and we see how the zoological field is always in, integrated with wildlife preservation the work that we do. And, you know, you often hear the cliche thing that, Hey, uh, we get people to care. Right. Mm -hmm. And we know that happens, but there's more to it than that. There, there's actual work in the field. There's money and resource and, and equipment and know-how that goes into field research and species rescue species preservation from the zoological field. It is in our future, uh, the presence of animals in the care of man is essential to their survival in the wild because our world as humans, we've impacted every corner of the world without prejudice, right? Mm -hmm. The only way that a lot of these species make it into the future for our grandchildren is through our zoological sciences. And we know that. So we're, we're ready and willing to fight for that, for that future. Um, what a lot of people say to me though, Hazel, is they'll say, well, but do we really need killer whales? And I kind of step back by that because I'm like, okay, first of all, we have a case in point right now. The Southern resident killer whale population is a dead man walking. They're below sustainable levels. Their, their food source is dwindling. 
they've got uh, mutated, you know, they're inbreeding because the population's too small. And a lot of the information we have that could save them comes from here in the United States comes from the killer whale population that SeaWorld has and a lot of the research and the know-how that they have done on metabolic and you name it, the, the list goes on. So we have a case in point right now where, yes, absolutely, killer whales in the caravan is essential to their survival in the wild. And somehow we have failed to get that message to the general public. What would you say to the people who have kind of completely misunderstood everything? Because I don't see how they can even form the opinion of, you know, they're better dead in the ocean than they are thriving in the care of man. Um, I try, I try as hard as I can to see from another person's perspective, but anyone that would say an animal's better off dead, um, I got very little patience for that. I'm sorry. We got enough animals dying in the wild uh, as a result of the impact of man. I mean, I've worked half my career in the wild and you want to get me heated. Uh, you know what I've seen, the disease, the immune compromise, the cancer lesions, the, the, the effects of persistent ocean contaminants, plastic bags in their stomach. I mean, I, I don't, I don't have any patience for that. I don't have any, let's get our priorities straight first mm -hmm. and foremost is what I would say. But, you know, um, we've got a lot of work to do. And in the future, I believe we're going to have to use the knowledge of behavior, not just zoological, the knowledge of behavioral management to covertly influence wild animal behavior. Uh, and we've already done this, by the way, there, there's been cases, um, Ken Ramirez gets talked about a lot because, you know, they covertly reshape the migration route of elephants to keep them out of the path of poachers and, and killers. Yeah. He right? spoke about it um, on a previous episode of this podcast. If anyone, it was so interesting to, to learn about also his work with primates as well. Absolutely. And that's the kind of work that has to continue. And that's going to be the future because the, the, you know, we're at biological and social caring capacity as far as an ecosystem globally, right? The only way we can allow these animals to live into the future is, is to employ those skill sets. So yeah, somebody talks about better off dead. No, I'm sorry. You don't get a seat at the table. And anyone who's ever worked with any animal you couldn't look in that animal's face and go, oh, yeah, you would rather be dead than be here when this animal is actively engaging in play sessions, in enrichment sessions, in research, in cognitive trials without, quote unquote, coercion. You know, fish doesn't even need to be involved. They're wanting to be there for attention, for engagement, for reinforcement that is just by being with trainers and other whales that they have a positive relationship with. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the the other thing is, you know, that that this that line of conversation is all wrong. If, if we're gonna really, we're in the midst of the sixth extinction, right? We this is not a debate; it's known. We've been tracking it since the seventies. In fact, it's right there in the Marine Marine Mammal Protection Act in the United States that that mentions it. Um, and every time we've looked at it, we we've realized that it's moving faster than we thought. And that's as a result of human impact. So that's where our conversation needs to be, not mm -hmm. on these fairy tale, um, you know, swim off into the sunset, free willy, 
type situations that aren't even in the best interest of that animal. And by the way, uh, when you when you look at it from a biologist standpoint, Keiko had a highly contagious uh, skin papilloma like herpes that biologists said that alone disqualifies him from putting him out there where it threatens the wild populations. There's potential for the same thing with Lolita for, for all we know, because she's been exposed to things there. They haven't. Mm -hmm. So it's not biologically responsible, right? We've got to think about what our wild populations need to be sustained and separately look at Lolita for who she is, her history, her unique background and make the decision that's best for her. And listen to the scientists. And listen to the scientists. Absolutely. Is there anything that you would say to any trainers listening? Um, because, you know, for me speaking to a lot of trainers from being a trainer myself and obviously you as well, we know very much what it's like to feel like we can't always use our voices to feel, I know a lot of trainers are made to feel that they can't speak up because of either they're replaceable or it's, you know, we can find someone else who will fill your position if you're not willing to go along with it. So I think a lot of trainers can feel quite frustrated um, with that in the modern day. Is there anything that you can add to that conversation that might help them be able to use their voices in a way that will enact change in a positive way? Well, I can't, if their employer tells them if they have a policy uh, for their public relations and their presence on social media, I can't tell them to go against that. You know, that's their, that's their employer's right. Um, having said that they have family and friends, right? Mm. And you can always represent to the people in your circle of friends. Um, aside from that though, uh, I do. I see quite a bit lately, especially on social media. And what I would say is, look, just be professional. Mm -hmm. Remember the science. Speak from a place of experience. You are the expert. You are not on the same plane as someone who does not have professional animal sciences experience, right? Recognize that. If someone genuinely asks a question and really wants to know, then answer it. But don't get into debates and with keyboard warriors because you're just going to elevate them to your level and you don't want to do that. So tell your own story, lead your story, but don't get caught chasing these people who are just throwing zingers at you. It's really interesting. You're, we had um, a lot of conversations about this at the conference last month, and we spoke about things like offering media training um, mm -hmm. to trainers so that they're better equipped to understand when you can engage and when you should stay away. Also thinking about monthly meetings where you have mental health check-ins with your trainers to see how they're doing, you know, and understanding that if you're an entry-level trainer, perhaps you should have a very different social presence to a trainer who's been working in the field for 10 years or more, simply because they have a better understanding of everything that's gone on. You know, there's no clear cut in the world of of social media and it no. is a mine it is a minefield <laughs> yeah. but you know there's a lot of conversations that are starting to happen now which makes me incredibly happy um mm -hmm. at the kind of management level at corporate level so for a lot of facilities worldwide if there's any trainers listening thinking they're not hearing us and we want to speak up they're getting there they're getting yeah. there just give them time <laughs> 
Yeah, and boy, are you right. And I will be the first one to say that, it, especially for people like me who didn't grow up in the world of social media, it is a minefield for sure. I mean, I'm afraid of emojis. I don't even know what they mean. <laughs> you know, use the wrong I, I one. You're a, sending a completely different message. Well, I, when I text, I text in complete sentences, you know, grammatically correct. And I use an ellipse every once in a while. And it <laughs> freaks my daughters out, you know. Um, so I don't know. But I, I will say, though, you know, that we um, I've often been frustrated because people who um, are radically anti-zoo. Um, mm -hmm. When I have a conversation with them, first and foremost, the vast majority of them really shift their position. A lot of it's just a lack of having accurate information. Secondly, I've always been frustrated by they'll post this picture or that picture or whatever, and it becomes a meme and it gets attention. Mm. Listen, people in the zoological community have an unlimited resource of the amazingly good things that happen every day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we flooding that space? So I, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I am working on it. Trust me. But yeah, we need to start harnessing it. We need to stop being afraid to use our voices. You know, whether that's, right. that's at the corporate level or at the trainer level, we just have to be using them the right way. Not only not be afraid, be proud. Because, yeah. you know, even if it doesn't judge you that way right now, I can guarantee you that the future will uh hold us high in the regard of of history because we're fighting a real extinction event mm -hmm. and uh zoos our top zoos in the world are the showroom floor front and center in that fight you gotta be proud you gotta you gotta get out and spread those messages you know i'm definitely not the one who coined this phrase or the sentence that i'm about to say uh i can't remember who it was but you know we're going through a change in perception right now that happened with the traditional zoos decades ago you know public expectations when they came to a marine park 10 years ago was oh we're gonna be entertained we're gonna see incredible water work we're gonna go on a roller coaster and we're gonna do this and that nowadays when someone comes to a marine park it's with a very similar expectation to a traditional zoo it's we're going to be educated we're gonna learn about the animals we're still gonna have fun as a family but, you know, we're going there with very a very different set of expectations. And I think that's really going to help us. And I think we're really going to see an upswing. Um, and I know that you yeah. touched on that slightly at the end of your last episode that you recorded with me as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's so, you know, when you when you really think if you sat and you think about the evolution of, of the zoo, right? Um, many, many years ago, it was it was everything they say it is. It was get animals, put them in cages and pay a price, come and see them, right? Well, that was important at the time because it it garnered interest and people went, well, hey, these are cool. Maybe we should keep them. And then we started training and we figured out a few things. And then we started doing entertainment, which drew more people. But also we focused on what made the animals appear like us. Right. And we did mm. that job so well, in fact, too well, that we we simply look at them with human eyes. And that's where we kind of are today, or at least where we were about 10 years ago. But the modern zoo and its mission has evolved continuously. It's no not at all like it was years ago, even 10 years ago. We now recognize that what we have to celebrate is animals differences, what allows mm. them to adapt to their unique environments and how they have needs if we're going to preserve them into the future. Um, and so the zoo starts to move beyond its walls in our future. Um, 
and for the sake of species preservation. And that's the message we've got to get to the general public because we, we often are so busy doing what we do, we forget that we need to lead our own story. Yeah, and I think what worries me so much about decisions like this is it contradicts all of that. When It is. When yeah, corporations... Well, they're talking about information that's 30 years old and applying it to us today. Yeah. And it's hard to make sense of that for someone that doesn't know any different. And when a zoo, one zoo will come out and say, you know, we're building better habitats, we're being more naturalistic, our animals are so well cared for, they have great welfare, look at everything we're doing. And then there's another facility that says, actually, we're going to send this animal to a sea pen because that's better. It's mm -hmm. almost like even within the industry, we're contradicting each other. So, so who are people going to believe? Because our message isn't the same. Well, and and let me tell you here, I'm gonna I'm gonna step into some uncharted territory. There is there's something going on here. There's a lot more than meets the eye. So you have um, Palace Entertainment owned Miami Sea Aquarium um, prior to the current owner. Um, the Dolphin Company, the CEO, Eduardo Albo, bought Miami Sea Aquarium in 2022. Mm -hmm. Well, they really are interested in the U.S. market because dolphin interactive programs might be outlawed in Mexico, which is where the dolphin company sort of originated, right? So he's mostly interested in the U.S. market and that property and the animals and whatnot. But he's he doesn't need a killer whale, right? That doesn't fit in his business model. So uh, add to that the fact that part of the sale required them to take her off public display. Well, now she's not contributing to the park in any way, shape, or form. She's just an expense. So mm -hmm. along comes Charles Vinnick and the whale sanctuary and forms, you know, friends of Tokate and says, well, we'll help pay her expenses in, in exchange for her, right? Not for nothing. Well, mm -hmm. you can see this isn't at all about what's best for her. It's really about Charles gets what Charles wants, a, you know, a mulligan on Keiko and um, Eduardo gets an expense taken off his books. So, you know, th there's always more to life than than meets the eye. And I think it's time we look at this and in and, and Mark world, you know, my world, uh, our uh, associations, uh, our agencies and our community would step up and go, no. No, huh, uh, no, sir. This animal comes first. First mm -hmm. of all, that pool would have never happened because that's just a disgrace. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was a disgrace even when it was built. But you know, at least forty years ago, we knew better. It should have been expanded then. But again, I think it would really come down to let's do what's right for her. It, it there's a whole lot of agendas here and a whole lot of. Uh, stories that have spun off of this but none of them are actually what's about uh toki yeah and i think you know it's it's such a hard situation you know we i think also we need to wait a little bit to see what's going to happen to see if they're you know if if slash maybe never federal approval is going to happen before we mm -hmm. can kind of even begin to move forward with this discussion and say hey what's actually the reality here that is facing Toki in this entire situation but from your experience working with Keiko from everything that you have shared with us today thank you and is there any last message that you want to give our listeners 
No, I would say you're very wise, Hazel, to bring up that point and temper it with the fact that there are a lot of laws that have to be met. And this is a marathon, not a sprint. It it will go on for a while. Um, I would also say uh, don't underestimate it either, because uh, all these same things were said when Keiko was going on. Everybody said, oh, no, it'll never happen. No, we'll never give the export permit, blah, blah, blah. And you know, uh, the rest is history. So we just have to stay alert, stay, pay attention, stay engaged and, mm -hmm. um, and, and continue to, um, speak from the facts and the science and stay together. That's right. That's right. Well said. Absolutely. Well, Mark, as always, thank you so much for coming on and uh, chatting with us today. It's been great. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe, and I will see you all next week.